0: Listening to Rattle and Pedal: Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay.
1: And maybe we're thinking about it wrong. Maybe we, you know, we're we're, we're cutting off our creative minds by not reading fiction enough. And my point is, I think there's a lot of business people that are in that space, right? That there's so much that they want to read about, whatever it be, it might be. You know, I know I, you know, the books that had a big influence on me in the last couple of years was a book on networks. And the book on blockchain, those are two books that really kind of grabbed my attention and, and really got my head thinking in different ways. But maybe I'm cutting off creativity when I don't read enough fiction and, or, or business people in general. That's a problem. I don't know. It's a random, very random comment.
2: Well, I agree with you. My last blog post was on that. Was it? Yeah. And it was a list of 50 plus books to help you think more like a strategic thinker. And how many of them were fiction? I don't think one of them was fiction. Yeah. But I agree with you. I used to read, when I was reading fiction, Tom Clancy, who is phenomenal at storytelling. I mean, he can build a character that you love or hate in one paragraph and then kill that person, you know, 400 (laughs) pages later. you know in this butterfly effect or something i mean it's it's really something but when i was reading fiction it was more of those type of books yeah. no i take that back i take that back gosh i remember it was 5 6 years ago i was working through the 100 top western civilization novels yeah. So I read everything from The Inferno, The Iliad, The Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, yes. So that's that's when I was reading f- fiction last. And I think that's probably why I took a break because I yeah, knocked that, out a, I knocked out about 50 or 60 of those.
1: Wow. Those are not exactly casual fiction <laughs> reading, right? Yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah.
2: Let's
1: read The Iliad. Holy mackerel. Right. Yeah.
2: Well, The Inferno <laughs> was the hardest. Or really? not even The Inferno. I read The Divine Comedy. Because it's broken into three. It starts with hell, goes through purgatory, and then goes to paradise. Hmm. So I think that might have been the one to break me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What do you think about this whole, and this might be a lean into our our topic for the day, but what do you think about this whole idea that you hear said, and and I wrote about this recently myself, that we're not a reading society anymore. People don't read. They have no attention span. What do you think
2: about that? I think that's true. I think society is bifurcated on this topic. I think probably you and I and the type of professionals that we interact with every day, we think it's normal. You know, the things that we do, our attention to personal development, reading and growing and learning is so different from the broader population. And I think when we get caught up in those work environments or even the communities that we live in, we think that is, you know, that's reality, more. right? Yeah. When we took the kids home for Thanksgiving, uh, I took them on a two or three hour tour of rural Illinois and let them see how America really lives. And they're like, "Well, that's the house they live in? Well, why are their houses this way? Or why are their cars like that? Do they actually do that we actually saw a tractor going around the main square in my hometown that I grew up in. And the kids are just dumbfounded by that. It, it's just not their reality compared to Chicago. Their high school has almost as many students as that town has residents. Yeah. But it's crazy. I saw a stat the other day that, let's see if I can find it real quick. I was just dumbfounded by this fact that, oh, here it is. 42% of U.S. college students will never read another book after they graduate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, my God. Is that a real statistic, though? I mean, meaning that they're, they're not going to physically pick up a physical book and read it. Is that what they're saying? Or are they saying they're never going to consume another book? They'll never listen to an audio book. They'll never read an ebook, you know, on a device. What are those two things do you think it really is?
2: I didn't write the question, Yeah, but even, oh, I know. even if it's either or, that number is alarming. And there were yeah. two other facts associated with it. The other one was 80% of U.S. families did not buy a book in the past year. And 70% of adults have not been in a bookstore in the past five years. Wow. I think people sit around and they watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians and... <laughs> all this other ridiculous, mindless television, and they just don't read books. They don't read newspapers. They get their news from CNN or Fox News. They don't question the reporting, or if they do question the reporting, it's you know kind of in black and whites, right? The station I watch is objective. The one that you watch is not objective, right? Yeah. They don't want to read something with a liberal bias and something with a, a conservative bias and try to reconcile the tension between those two. And I think that's where things get really dangerous for society because they're no longer being critical thinkers.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting. I, I guess I've been of the opinion that, and maybe I'm entirely wrong, and I, I, I guess actually you've just changed my view. I'll just come out and bluntly say it, that I think you've told me I am wrong, which is, I guess, haven't believed in the, you know, people don't read anymore line. I, just, I think that's false. But I think where you've changed my view is that I think that the circle of senior executives that most firms hope to attract with thought leadership, read. you know, there's a reason that Warren Buffett reads 80% of his day every single day. I don't think that's any different for most senior executives in successful companies. And so I, I think that your point is really great in the, and you totally changed my view in the sense that I think you're correct, that those statistics are, are real and the broader population you know, probably doesn't read as much as they used to. But I think the audience that most firms I'm aware of want to attract, you know, business executives do. And I would argue, I think they read probably more than they ever have. They just maybe read in different ways than they used to actually read, maybe reading the wrong term. They consume thinking in different ways, meaning that the opening space for them to consume video and audio, that is also equally educational and sparking of new thought, that kind of a thing.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think they are societies, you know, outside of academia, critical thinkers, Yeah. So they do absorb information from a lot of different sources. And you probably know this as well as anybody, given your work with Bob Boudet and and the Bloom Group around what it takes to produce real thought leadership and get that thought leadership published. That the stuff that goes into the Channels or sources that those people read is highly competitive, very much scrutinized, and it's high quality, right?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting, and that I I don't know that I I have enough historical context on this as maybe some folks do. There was a tried and true model for thought leadership, I think, for a very long time that a lot of firms played right, and that model was fairly straightforward. You publish a book. You take that book and you publish some derivative HBR articles or articles in other well-respected third-party business publications, assuming you can get the privilege to do so by working with the editors and you have something compelling to say, which presumably you do because you got to publish in a book in the first place. And then from there, you hit the speaker circuit in some way, You know, mostly external events hosted by third parties that are going to infer reputational quality on, on your thinking, right? You know, we started seeing this about five years ago. We just started getting all these firms. I shouldn't say all these firms. I act like there's thousands of them. But we we're, were getting firms calling us, saying that that tried and true model that they had used for 20, 30 years wasn't working as well as it used to. And they weren't sure why. All of a sudden, that wasn't delivering the volume of and quality of business leads that they had been accustomed to from that. Mm-hmm. I do think that that does speak to some of the behavioral changes that I even you know even senior executives are having, right? You know they're consuming media in different ways. maybe they're consuming it from different sources. Maybe they're looking at content in more bite-sized pieces as well as long form content. I think there's a lot of different you know avenues to that. I think that the web obviously is playing a much more pivotal role both in attraction of clients and then engagement of them into hopefully, conversations for the firms involved than it used to. And I think a lot of firms were a little behind, right? They, they you know, especially smaller ones, they, they maybe hadn't put enough thought into their web presence and and how their web presence was behaving as a tool from a thought leadership perspective and also a transition perspective from thought leadership into real business conversations. So Hmm. I think the central question that we're hoping to talk about today is sort of, you know, where is thought leadership going? What is the future of thought leadership? I just thought it was, you know, I think it's interesting to look at the past and see where it's been and then think about what's going to change and what's not going to change.
2: Yeah, I think you're spot on in that regard. I think the one thing that is not gonna change is this. Clients and buyers have problems they're trying to solve. And they want to hire people that can help them solve them. And you know that popular marketing adage that people don't buy drill bits, they buy holes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah is the mantra I think we as marketing people and as firms need to keep in mind because the thought leadership is really the making tangible the intangible solution right yeah like you can read it touch it digest it approach it when it's in written form the barriers to entry in creating holes or at least communicating, how you make holes have just almost disappeared. So I think the best hole maker, whatever that hole metaphor represents, who can get that message out. To their ideal client are going to be the most successful. So in that regard, nothing has changed. Yeah, no, it's funny.
1: I, when I was thinking about our conversation today, I wrote down the exact same things. I don't think any of that changes. And I think that there's no doubt that the only caveat I would add, and it's not even really a caveat because you said it, is just that I don't think firms always understand it. I think that they want, clients want to find those answers from trusted resources that actually have a solution. I think there's times when firms think that thought leadership is all about problem definition and they feel like whenever they get too specific about solutions that it implies that, you know, we're trying to sell you something. But I think clients actually kind of expect that and they want it, right? Like Mm -hmm. I want the answer and I'm willing to pay for you eventually to give it to me if you can give me proof that it's there and it's real. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what's interesting about that is, is if that's not changing, I mean, I think the desire for advice on how to solve the pressing issues of the day for any senior forward-thinking executive, I mean, if that's not going to change, then what, what is changing? I don't know, I've got some thoughts, but what do you think changing? No, go ahead and jump in. Well, I, mean, I think the, the biggest thing I see changing, and, and this comes back to the start of our dialogue today, is I, and I don't know exactly how it's changing, but there's a bit of a shift from active learning to passive learning, right? We don't want to have to work so hard to get a, the insight. And I think that certainly that, that that's you know, you're seeing a, a, a large in podcasting, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing certainly more video in, in the broader content marketing universe, and to the extent that thought leadership is a subset of that. And so I think that you're definitely seeing buyers of all types saying, well, you know, I, I am a little more time compressed and I don't want to have to work so hard for this as much. So I think there certainly is a desire for more passive media consumption, things that I can multitask on. You know, I think that's why podcasts have become back in vogue again is because I can do something else while I'm listening to this objective insight. When I sit down to read, that's the only thing I can do. I have to focus on reading. and That's my only option. And so there's something to that. that yeah, certainly.
0: You're listening to Rattle and Pedal. Divergent Thoughts on Growing Your Professional Services Firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, Principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff.
1: The second half, of that, I think there's a tension, right? I think that there's, I guess, the old days, and I, you know, may, maybe back in the day, you got the Harvard Business Review, and it was mailed to you, and you opened it up, and you read it, and your assumption was, if, if HBR published it, then it absolutely is worth my time, and I probably will read most everything that interests me in this, in this publication. I think to your point of kind of like, there's so many hole makers, <laughs> that's what you said, anybody can make a hole. Mm -hmm. that now it's like we need proof of concept, right? I'm not going to give you 20 minutes of my time or 30 minutes of my time until I can see within a minute and a half that it's going to be worth those 20 minutes. And that proof of concept can come in a lot of forms, right? It can become in shorter form content, a blog, an article that leads into longer form stuff, whatever it might be. But I need some proof that this resource that's giving me thought leadership at length is worth my time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that that matters, whether it's, you know, I think that holds true to even respected third party publishers as well.
2: Yes, I think very much so. Probably to some degree, even more. Yeah. And it's a double edged sword because I think, you know, when when I look at the types of electronic communications I get from cure, I'll call them curators. I have become much more critical of the type of content I'm receiving from various publications because I think so many of these publications are trying to feed the content monster that the quality has gone down. And, you know, if you look at things like Fortune, Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, you know, pick your favorites. I feel like the quality of those stories have really dropped and they're nothing mm. more than clickbait. Yeah. And, and the writers spend more time on the headline than they do on the actual content. And I don't know if I've reached a point in my career where everything just seems old and repackaged, <laughs> but I, I, don't see a lot of new thinking coming out of, of those periodicals. Yeah. Um, I, I, think I see more new thinking popping up, you know, via the wall street journal, the HBR and even the HBR, I think is doing kind of incremental stuff around the edges, but I think you're absolutely right. There's a cynicism and not that my point of view, you know, reflects everybody's. But I I think there is a cynicism around content for content's sake that is clickbait and not really thought-provoking, help me out type of stuff.
1: It's funny because, you know, for years, and and we've done research on this, right? we've, we've, We've surveyed clients of consulting firms. We've surveyed consulting firm marketers, you know, on and off for a number of years about what the most effective delivery mechanisms are for thought leadership. And consistently, year over year over year, both clients and marketers, will say that trusted third-party publications like HBR are the most effective ways to take thought leadership to market. And self-published mechanisms, corporate blogs, you know, tend to be in the bottom tier, you know, maybe, well, not bottom tier, I shouldn't say that, I have to look at the data. But, you know, relatively speaking, that, that, that third-party publisher is more respected than the, the corporate self-publisher. But I, I guess I don't see it in the data changing, but I guess just my, my gut says it's changing, that there's a few publications that are still holding that regard, I think HBR certainly. But then I think there's a lot that just aren't, because when you get to this, you get to the website and it's just a cobbled mess of ads and things that are trying to grab your attention away from what you're trying to consume and you just lose trust. We see more clients interested in self-publishing than we see interested in publishing elsewhere, even though I think both are valuable. I, I think they need to be doing both. Absolutely. But I just wonder if maybe we're we're actually getting more trust in the corporation as publisher than we used to. That we were, we would have been skeptical years ago, but we're actually finding more objective. I guess I, I find my most trusted resources, the people I read the most, that have had the most influence on the way I think about the world from a business perspective are self-publishers. You know, it's not necessarily coming from a trusted third-party publication.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think what changes and what doesn't change it, there are opposite sides of the same coin. Let's mix some metaphors. It's chicken or egg. Is You trust, you know, the brand at the top of whatever it is you're reading, right? I trust the McKinsey quarterly. Why do I trust the McKinsey quarterly? Because I've read it for decades and I've come to consistently get good information out of it that I think is valid and valuable. But what came first? Was it the McKinsey brand And the quarterly that made me trust and read the content? Or was it the content that I found useful that made me (laughs) trust the brand? (laughs) Right. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, yeah. I, I've, I've said forever that thought leadership is your most effective way to build reputation, right? To, to build your brand and get someone to you, you've described it as relevance in the past to see you as relevant. I, I think it's the most effective brand building tool you have, but you've raised a valid point, which is that does the thought leadership build the brand or does, does it the other
2: way around? And I think it's a little bit of both. And what I think what validates brand and thought leadership is that social proof, right? If my peer group is coming to me and saying, you have to read this article in HBR, in McKinsey Quarterly that Accenture just put out, that validates more quickly that content, those ideas. And I think that's the important element that we as social animals need. And that's why the speaking opportunities, the book writing, all the other things is it just gets you exposed to that population of people that can become social proof. And I would say that people within that population carry a different amount of weight than others in building the credibility of a given piece. I mean, there are Mm -hmm. people in my network that would say, you have to read this and I will read it right away. Yeah, I've say, always had that effect on you, Jeff. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's others say, "Hey, you should read that." I'm like, "Okay, maybe I'll take a look at it." Oh, but we, so I'm actually on
1: that side of the coin, aren't I? <laughs> yeah.
2: Now that's not true. I mean, you've convinced me I need to get back to my fiction reading. <laughs> so I'm gonna no. start. I'm gonna start doing that. But I think but that's I think, the important thing, and we need to understand. And I think this is an important thing in not just thought leadership, creation and consumption and validation, is there's not one way, one buyer, one consumer of this information. Some people only like third party publications, curators. Others don't like that. They want to hear straight from the horse's mouth. Some are loyal to, you know, their alma maters publication. Right. Or, you know, their former employer. We all have different criteria that we use in order to decide what's valuable to us and how we want to consume it. I think one of the most valuable things that has changed that probably won't change that you've already alluded to is we all learn in different ways. You know, we have auditory learners, we have verbal or visual learners, we have kinetic learners, and the content and the ideas have to be packaged in a way that works for me in a way to consume it.
1: I really like the McKinsey 550, this new format that they've released. And what I like about it is it's digitally native to use the overused term, but, but you know, it's inherently interactive content in five minutes and then if you want to go deeper, you can go deeper into a 50-minute dive. I think what I like about it is that it's doing exactly that. It's sort of giving you various lengths of content various formats of content and it's being very direct and saying you know I'm going to give you a proof of concept I'm going to give you a five minute proof of concept to understand this concept at a high level and if you want to go deeper give me 50 minutes and I thought it was just really smart for them to be that direct I mean we've we've used that model of short form long-form content paired together topically strong for years but I guess we were never so so bold to just say bluntly to the reader that this is what we're asking of you and what you're going to get in return and I think that's really, really smart. So I I think on some levels, that's sort of, I think that is the blueprint of what fellowship will look more and more like going forward is, you know, mixed formats elegantly delivered together a little more seamlessly. I mean, I think most firms and us included, yeah, we deliver varied content lengths and types and formats, but they're all sort of all kind of siloed, right? They're all there and they're connected, on some level, but they're not really elegantly strung together the way they should be or could be and will be going forward.
2: Yeah. And I think that's probably the big takeaway from this conversation. What I think has fundamentally changed is that learning is now just in time, Mm. right? I have an issue. I have an interest. I want to go deep. And... SEO allows you to go out and get smart fast when you need to get smart fast.
0: Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at RattleAndPedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.